Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and witch woman of the lowlands, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and imaginary fiend, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman Volume 5, A Game of You, Chapter 5, Over the Sea to Sky. Over the Sea to Sky was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Sean McManus, with additional art by Brian Talbot and Stan Walk, colored by Daniel Vazo and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Elisa Quitney, cover by Dave McKean. All sense of who I am, where I am, and where I'm going has been swallowed by the dark. Time to wake up. In a game of you number five, Over the Sea to Sky, Barbie finds herself in her childhood home. While there, she discovers a young blonde girl who she recognizes as her childhood self. The girl says, kind of, she's a part of Barbie. Barbie created her, sort of. She's the cuckoo. Barbie says that it's because of this little girl that her friends are dead, and this girl corrects her. It's because of us. The girl explains that Barbie had a dull childhood and turned to fantasy stories to stave off the boredom, which worried her parents, so Barbie began to defend herself. She made up a land where she was a princess and her real parents would come and take her home someday. The girl leads Barbie into her childhood bedroom, where there are stuffed animal versions of Martin Tenbones, Wilkinson, Luz, and Printedo. The girl says that she is Barbie's imaginary friend, and she moved into Barbie's dream world when Barbie stopped using it. She asks Barbie if Barbie wants her to be happy, and Barbie says yes, and then the girl asks for permission to kill Barbie, to completely destroy her, as that is what it would take for her to be happy. And Barbie wants her to be happy, right? Barbie agrees, and the girl walks out to instruct her followers to take Barbie to the Isle of Thorns. They'll start at moonrise. Meanwhile, in New York, reports of an incoming hurricane come into a radio show, while Thessaly, Hazel, and Foxglove walk the moon's road and start to forget who they are. Eventually, they find themselves in the land of Barbie's dream. Hazel and Foxglove want to find Barbie, but Thessaly is focused on finding the cuckoo. Along the way, they find Wilkinson's body, and Thessaly uses magic to talk to him and finds out that the cuckoo took Barbie. Wilkinson asks Thessaly to tell Barbie that he's sorry. As they walk, Foxglove yells at Hazel for cheating and getting pregnant, but then talks about what they need to do to raise the baby together. Back in New York, Wanda is talking to George about the winds when there's a crash outside. Wanda runs out to help a woman that got stuck under a falling garbage bin and brings her back inside. The woman says the mean wind has only just begun and it's going to get worse. In the land, the Cuckoo and Luz are dragging Barbie's body to the Isle of Thorns, where the Hierogram is. Her plan is to destroy the Porpentine and escape the worlds beyond the land, but just then, Thessaly, Hazel, and Foxglove show up. The Cuckoo runs to them and points to Luz, saying the Cuckoo was going to kill Barbie. Thessaly runs up to Luz and kills her, thinking she's the Cuckoo. The real Cuckoo wakes Barbie and says that if she destroys the Porpentine and the Hierogram, then she'll destroy the land and be able to escape. Back in New York, Wanda realizes that the woman she brought inside is I don't like dogs lady. The woman says her name is Maisie. She asks about Wanda and then tells a story about her nephew, Billy, who was also trans and ended up getting killed in a motel. In the land, Barbie stands up and smashes the Porpentine into the Hierogram, destroying them both. 
The cuckoo rejoices that she has won. Morpheus shows up and, fulfilling his part of the compact, he begins to destroy the land. It turns out that he is the Murphy that everyone talked about, and everyone in the land starts to walk toward him, disappearing into his cloaks. When he's done dissolving the land, he turns to Thessaly, who demands the cuckoo. He says he's displeased with her, she shouldn't be there, and now he can't return her to the waking world. Back in New York, the hurricane kicks up. George has just enough time to warn Wanda that this storm is not just any storm, and they are in a very old building, when the winds bust through the walls and send them crumbling down. All right, Elisa, so here we are, winding down in a game of you. What did you think of this issue? I think that of all the Sandman stories, this is the one that should be made into a Broadway musical or a West End <laughs> musical. This is, I can see this as a musical or at least a, a show, but I, I like musicals, you know, at me if you disagree. And <laughs> what I think we're getting here is the Cuckoo's I Want song. You know, yeah. this is, this is, you know, she's the antagonist but what we're really getting in her I want song is how much she is in her own mind the protagonist of her story as we're all told that our antagonists should be and you know she wants to stretch her wings and fly out of dreams and into little girls minds and to lay her own eggs there and I am just really hoping someone you know comes up with the right tune for that Oh, yes. No, the I Want song for the cuckoo is uh, would be amazing. And also, like, you know, you can, if you if you turn it around a little bit, like see this from the perspective of, you know, of this entity that was created and then kind of left and stuck in this space and created out of a sense of like, you know, escaping boredom and all of that, you know, um, it's so interesting. And I, I really love um, the way that they built that out. I love that the cuckoo was created by Barbie, um, her imaginary friend that didn't want to be stuck in a world that limited her. It is such a cool villain idea. And this is a fun turn of the story. Like, I love the externalized internal antagonist. Always give me more of that. I adore that. Um, and once again, I am just feeling like the, the confidence and the certainty in the way that this was written, that this was written with an understanding of exactly what this story was here to do. And it's doing it. And I just love kind of being along for the ride with that. Yeah. And we, of course, finally get our Morpheus payoff. And I think it is it is <sighs> a really rewarding one. <laughs> I absolutely love that this is Murphy. How did I not see that? How did I not see that this whole time? Well, you know, Thessaly speaks for all of us. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and start, you know, once again with the cover art um, that uh, that Dave McKean has given us. Um, the top half is the Game of View title over a blurred and reddened vision of traffic at night. Um, and the bottom looks to me like an elf watching over dancing ladies. And I'm not really sure, like, I have no idea what any of Dave McKean's covers mean or represent they don't represent like literal moments in the story so they sort of represent a i think kind of a feel or or something but no matter what they always kind of like um meld really well with the tone of the story that you're about to read and the magic that is that art the way that he makes this this really abstract art 
work thematically and tonally with the rest of the story is amazing. Yes, and it's like the dissonance of jazz, where mm-hmm. in in those in those things that don't quite match the way it, it doesn't follow exactly the way you're expecting in a straightforward way, and so it creates that little bit of tension that makes you think and analyze. And it, it also is reminding me. I'm loving being part of your your novel writing course, and you know. I have this idea in my head that I really want to embrace collage in part because mm-hmm. of spending so long, you know, re-looking at and, and you know, and, and uh, working with the Dave McKean covers, which makes me think, yeah. oh, God, the power of collage to evoke and play with symbols, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing about collage. Um, and, and the reason why the... the um... The Year of Writing Magically workshop that I'm teaching and Elisa is taking right now um, includes building up all of that collage as a way of getting to know your story. And one of the things that I love about that is that oftentimes you will have images that do not directly represent any literal element of your story, but that somehow bring that whole feeling together. And again, as me, like somebody who is not terribly like artistically inclined, my stick figures are even disappointing. Like it's just, you know, um, I can, I can really appreciate all of the kind of encoded information that comes along with, um, you know, with these kinds of images, with this kinds of kind of imagery, we have this sort of elfish figure, these like sort of sharpened ears and all of that watching these dancing ladies. And this is a story that has a lot of women and a lot of representation for different kinds of women, you know, in this particular story. And then we have this sort of elfish, you know, um, kind of male appearing figure watching over all of that. It does feel to me a little bit like Morpheus kind of in the back watching all of this play out he'll play whatever role he needs to you know as the murphy which i love that i love that so much i mean it's an interesting thought that maybe this incarnation of of morpheus is kind of an elfin king you know he's sort of a high fantasy morpheus um although when we see him deconstructing the world he is he's not that yeah he's uh it's it's really fun to kind of see uh, that representation, something again, not literally from the story, but sort of that's kind of what the what the feel is. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the cuckoo and Barbie's dream world, and now understanding that this cuckoo is something that Barbie created. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the questions that I started to ask myself was, when did the cuckoo first move into Barbie's dream world? You know, mm-hmm. she talks the cuckoo. I don't know if the cuckoo's pronouns would be she. Uh, it's a, I don't. She appears as a little girl and hasn't argued otherwise. That so is I'm true. Guessing, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the cuckoo um, says, you know, that that Barbie basically invited. What did she say? Well, you left yourself wide open for me, really. I mean, really. It's a little like possession. Only I didn't bother with your body. I moved into your dream world, into those parts of your life you weren't using. And that made me think, okay, when was Barbie not using her dream world? We saw her use it a bit in the doll's house storyline, but I think she was revisiting it. So I'm assuming that Barbie had this rich 
childhood dream world. And during this whole period when she first got together with Ken, she might not have been in it as much. It somehow just seems to me that she was losing those pieces of herself, those imaginative pieces of herself, and that something about the dream vortex brought her back into Mm -hmm. that into that world um and then i was thinking about when i turned 40 my mom gave me a birthday card with this wonderful isadora duncan quote you were once wild here don't let them tame you oh i love that it's such a great quote and i was thinking about that in terms of yes you could say that we all abandon our our dream worlds, but there seems something in this very gender conscious, identity conscious storyline, particular about the ways in which Barbie has abandoned her rebellious childhood self. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, you know, and there's this, um, you know, one of the first things we see about the cuckoo in her form as Barbie, she's got a scar from taking physical risks. And it's not what we would associate with, you know, the princessy Barbie doll, um, you know, what we may have first thought about Barbie when we encountered her before we, we got to know her better. And I just love how this brings us into the idea of what happens to the imaginary worlds that we leave behind as we're, you know, socialized into more adult versions of ourselves. Yeah, I love that idea, you know, um, and that, and when the cuckoo says, I moved into the spaces that you weren't using, like at the beginning of this story, we hear from Barbie saying that she hasn't dreamed. She doesn't dream, you know, she hasn't dreamed in a really long time. Um, so she, I mean, something about this, that dream being touched by the the vortex uh, in the Rose Walker story in the doll's house, um, I think is kind of an interesting thing. Like, you know, did Barbie abandon it? Was there something about that magic that made it impossible for her to access anymore? Did that magic open up an opportunity for the cuckoo to shut Barbie out, only to realize that Barbie was then pivotal and having to bring her back? Um, I mean, there's a lot in there that we're really not sure about what happened on the cuckoo side of it. Um, But we know that she was kind of a stowaway. She was sort of hiding in those spaces where Barbie wasn't looking and, um, and then realized that she wanted more you know, out of her life and her existence, this one wild and precious life, right? You know, she's only got one. What is she going to do with it? Um, So I think that is a super interesting, those are interesting questions asked. Like, I don't know if the story is going to answer any of them, um, but those are really interesting questions about this kind of extended world around, you know, we see where the cuckoo interacts with Barbie, intersects with Barbie. And the thing that I find so interesting too is that Barbie, I mean, we the first time we meet Barbie is in Doll's house and she is Barbie and Ken. She she looks like this um basically brought to life Barbie doll and is married to a dude named Ken who looks like a Ken doll, which are the most boring of all the dolls, right? Like of all the things that she's going to choose to evoke in her life, she is choosing um, these these dolls, which are also like 
um, you know, incredibly, the Barbies, especially of the time period in which Barbie would have been growing up, which is about probably about the time when you and I would have been growing up, right? These were incredibly, um, you know, like heteronormative dolls, right? They were, they basically represented everything in a societal ideal. Um, and, and they're boring. Like Barbie dolls were just, at least for me, <laughs> really boring, you know. Um, and then that's what she grows up to evoke, this doll, you know. Um, gets to New York, starts painting her face, starts feeling that part of herself wanting to come out, that imaginary part. And then here it is, you know, in this cuckoo, which I think is such an interesting way of, of personalizing that internal conflict. Yes. Oh, Absolutely. And by the way, I, I loved Barbie dolls. I loved playing with them, but they were very limited in how many poses they could take because yeah. their arms and their legs only moved sort of in a little, they were the opposite of yoga dolls because they could, they, they were, you know, <laughs> as stiff as geriatric people so that you could, you could try to turn them into superheroes. They could fly with their hands out, but they couldn't fight and they couldn't, you know, they were they were a little... And her feet. Barbie's yes. feet always bothered me. They were always in this very high heel formation that just looked totally uncomfortable. Yes. And their hands were also sort of fused in a very ladylike way. That None of that bothered me. I, I think I was just more... Um, I wanted them to be able to hug and grapple and fight like yeah. G.I. Joe. Mm -hmm. Mine were mm -hmm. always fooling around with G.I. Joe's. They found Ken... Just um, not quite Rutger Hauer enough, but that's another story. So I want I want to hear you talk more about, you know, taking an internal antagonist, this whole sort of psychological way of approaching it mm -hmm. and, you know, externalizing it and dramatizing it. Oh, I love the way that Neil did that here. Um, OK, so for those of you who are not as familiar with how all of this storytelling stuff works, um, antagonist, of course, is the character who is at odds with your protagonist that is pushing back on your protagonist. Um, and so we have here like there's usually you have an internal antagonist, which is what happens when a protagonist wants two opposing things equally and cannot decide between the to. And you'll see a lot of those kinds of stories. Um, one classic example I always use when I talk about this is Woody from Toy Story, right? You know, Woody wants to be a good toy, but also wants to be Andy's favorite toy. And when you look at everything that goes wrong, it goes wrong because Woody is causing his own problems, right? That is a classic internal antagonist. Um, an external antagonist is even easier, even more direct. Like it is two people who want mutually opposing things, right? The antagonist wants the mutually opposed thing to what your protagonist is chasing and then your external antagonist will then block the protagonist that's their only job that's what makes them so much fun to write um, but here we have what is an internal antagonist right Bo Barbie's um, kind of resistance to a boring life and to a boring internal landscape right um, and yet not really being sure how to escape her identity as Barbie of Barbie and Ken, you know, um, so she's working with that. 
But then, so we have this, she was bored as a child. Um, she was um, creating this really rich, like, internal world, internal dream world um, in the land, which was already pre-existing to her. She was just kind of uh, renting it for a while. Um, and then has an imaginary friend that she then abandons to be more boring, right? And this imaginary friend, the cuckoo, um, is not boring. Like whatever else you may say she is, she's not boring. So here we have a circumstance where due to the magic of the world, we are actually able to take an internal conflict, you know, Barbie's wrestling with her own boring self and putting that into an external antagonist created from that internal conflict. It's really fun. Yeah, I I think that what makes this story so successful is the, mm -hmm. the fact that you, you know, it wears its psychology on its sleeve and yeah. yet it, you know, it works so mm -hmm. perfectly that it doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter. I I also want to say that I have these kinds of dreams. I, I have dreams that are so obvious. You don't need mm -hmm. a book of dreams. Like somebody's, <laughs> you know, right. somebody will be stuffing me in a garbage bag. It's that kind mm -hmm. of like, oh, I guess that's what that means. And yeah. I, it's, mm -hmm. so I, and I feel there is something that, that with this storyline in particular also combines dream logic mm -hmm. and the personal and that kind of Jungian archetypal fairy tale other level of symbolism. Yes, I love that. Uh, one of the things I've, I've been accused that my dreams are not working too hard. I'll, come, <laughs> I'll wake up and I'll start talking about my dreams and it'll be like so obvious what that is. So I have that same thing. But yeah, like those, those, but then there are these like eternal symbols, like water is a symbol for creativity. I have water dreams all the time where I'm like walking on the surface of water, just sunk in a little bit enough to like for it to touch me. But anyway, um, I think that that's really interesting. I do love that dream logic, you know, um, like sense of what's going on here. But also we have the cuckoo as a symbol, like this bird that goes in and lays its eggs and pushes out the other eggs, like forces the, the mother to push out the other eggs. And so the cuckoo is an egg that Barbie laid in her own nest, which is now trying to push her out. Um, and I find that really interesting um, symbolism as well. Um, and then Barbie, you know, is brainwashed like Luce. Like we find out what happens to Luce is that they're just she's just brainwashed by um, by this powerful cuckoo that can that can just make you do whatever it is that she wants you to do. Um, and the thing that I thought was really interesting about that is that those of us who've been in therapy, right, have probably heard a therapist talk about like the inner child, at which point we roll our eyes, you know. Um, but the thing that I've discovered is that that shit is real, right? Um, you know, your inner child lives inside and tries to keep you safe according to the world that existed for them when they were formed when they were you, right? You split off and grow up and change the circumstances, but the trauma still stays there using now harmful strategies to try to protect you, right? Um, so Barbie, I don't think, you know, was really traumatized. Like she was just bored. Um, her inner child is just bored and will always be bored no matter where she goes, because that's the world that the child was always going to live within. Um, so this is a really fun narrative expression of that like psychological experience. Um, and I found that reflection to be so interesting as well within this narrative. 
Oh, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Now, another aspect of this is, Mm -hmm. you know, the cuckoo explicitly talks about boy fantasies versus Uh girl fantasies. And I remember, you know, looking at that when I was in my 20s and thinking, on some level, I recognized a truth to it. And on another level, personally, I was a comic book reader. My fantasies included, you know, being a witch, being a powerful telekinetic mutant, being, you know, a a rage-fueled PhD jungle queen like Shauna the She-Devil. And, you know, and I thought about the adventures I would I would go off on. So I, I was I I could understand that it was perhaps in general true. I, I think this is again one of those things where it's not Neil just hatching a theory and then putting it into some character's mouth. It has to do with him being an observer and a listener. And I, I will talk more about this, but some of that listening was the listening to daughters and yeah. and paying attention to them and, you know, hearing what they were saying to him. But I was also thinking about the gender aspect, because what the cuckoo seems to be saying here is that boys dream of powers that will, you know, enable them to to perform admirable acts so they will be admired. Mm-hmm. And the girls dream of having a secret identity of being a chosen one. And that chosen oneness is the key to to greatness. And, you know, I started to resonate with that in my head. Simone de Beauvoir, uh, the the feminist writer, wrote a, a book called The Second Sex. And in it, she she speaks. Let's see if I can. I had to refresh my memory because the last time I engaged <laughs> with this was college. Um, mm-hmm. Simone de Beauvoir talked about women being in a state of imminence, a sort of, you know, it is a, a state of being while men are assigned more to this uh, state of transcendence, which has to do with doing as opposed mm-hmm. to being. And right. I thought, well, in a sense, these male-female fantasies as laid out by the cuckoo are about state of imminence versus transcendence. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if that has to do, does that have to do with early socialization through you know, the fairy tales and the roles we see and, mm-hmm. and, and all of those subtle things? Or are those deep brain, you know, differences? I, I've been reading this book, Behave, by Robert Sapolsky, a primatologist, mm-hmm. neuroscientist, neuro, uh, who talks about the fact that in people who identify as female, the dimorphic, if I'm saying this right, the, the parts of the brain that are different sizes in males and females mm-hmm are the size of the gender that the person perceives themselves to be, even prior mm-hmm. to any any surgery or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, what, what do you think? Are these fantasies more a product of socialization or a product of our, our different fantasy world brains? Wow, I don't think I have ever been asked a question that I've been less qualified to answer <laughs> than that one. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think no, 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 no. I love it. I mean, I, I love that the you know it's an interesting question to be asked. I don't think it's one that I can um, 
I can adequately answer. Um, but I do think that it is it is a really interesting thing to think about, especially in a story that talks so much about gender. And I do think that there are, you know, when you're raised in the world as a woman, right, that there are certain restrictions that are put on you from as early as you can remember, because you are in the world as a woman, because you are trained to believe certain things. The thing like, you know, when we were little, um, and, uh, you know, a kid in class, a, a boy would be mean to us in class, everybody would say, oh, it's just because he likes you. As though that's a reason why it's okay for abuse. Like those are the kinds of things that we are trained to believe as women early, early on. However, there are clearly things about gender identity um, that come from deep inside of us that have little to do with uh, however we externally, biologically represented sex when we were born. Um, and so there's so much that's so complicated about all of it. Um, but I do think that all of those are interesting questions. And I am fairly certain with my complete lack of any qualifications to answer any of this, that there's probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. There's probably different, a mix of things that contribute to that. The way that, you know, biological sex hormones may affect the brain and the way that the brain develops. Um, and also the way that we are socialized. Like there's, I'm sure it's a mix of so many different influences. Um, but I do find that a really interesting, the idea of the state of being versus the state of doing, the idea that that boys have power fantasies and, and girls look for a secret identity for something. And the idea, too, of being chosen, you know, which is, I think, such a huge um, part of being socialized in this culture as a woman is the idea that you do not choose, you are chosen, right? And so you have to develop yourself to be chosen, that you are sort of born into this saleswoman position of having to sell yourself as a human, which in a lot of ways can be really dehumanizing, you know? Um, so I find that as so I, I find all of these questions super fascinating. Um, and I love the fact that, that Neil saw this in his children and picked some of that out from from listening to them and understanding them. It's again, like, you know, a, like everything, it's more than one thing. Like everything, this is a combination of so many different influences and so many different things, which I think makes it really, really fascinating. Um, but quickly, one of the things we wanted to talk about too was uh, Brian Talbot's art in this. We have somebody new. We have uh, Brian Talbot and Stan Walk um, bringing in additional art. So what was the art that they brought in? So Brian uh, Talbot uh, was the penciler, Stan Walk the inker. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh, okay. On on this, and so uh, and they, I believe they team up again. Uh, although, you know, we we skipped over the one issue. Uh, um, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna hit that later, and I think that they team up and they will bring us Johanna, Lady Johanna Constantine together. Oh, I think it's Stanwalk as well. Um, Brian's realistic style, I think, is a great fit for this issue. Uh, where we get the truth behind Barbie's fantasies. And there's something about the way he gives the little Barbie cuckoo a slightly gnomish quality that makes her sinister mm -hmm. as well as charming. 
He's, uh, by the way, a writer as well as an artist. He's known for his Luther Arkwright books and a brilliant book called A Tale of One Bad Rat, a great mm-hmm. standalone. If people are, you know, sometimes people don't know where to begin. A Tale of One Bad Rat, which I hope is still available somewhere, is a standalone and really beautiful book. I remember him coming out with. Oh, that's really great. I definitely want to see more of uh, Lady Johanna. So I'm very, very excited to see uh, see her come back. Um, back to the story. Um the one of the things that I really loved about this was the the basic inevitability and acceptance of the eventual unmaking of the land. Like we have, um, you know, earlier in the story, we had that moment with Matthew, right? Where it's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it, boss? Right. You know, it's like, I'm not going to do anything. You know, and so Murphy, our beloved Murphy, is just sitting here watching everything happen, comes in when he is called and does what he has agreed to do. He talks about the compact, right? You know, um, that this was an agreement that when this happens, he will come in and unmake the land. Um, And so throughout this story, we've gotten the sense that the land is something that was made by someone other than Barbie. Barbie lived there in her dreams for a while, ruled over it a little bit, um, but it was never really hers. She was just like a, a temporary renter, you know? And so the outcome of this, the unmaking of the land was always built into the fabric of the land. It was always meant to eventually go. And I love this line um, from Morpheus when he's talking to Barbie and he says, endings are mixed blessings, you know? Um, and endings are sad, but necessary. The entire function of time is to give us a temporary space to play in. And it always brings me back to, and I quote this, like, I quote this a lot. Honestly, it's one of like my most quoted lines, but it comes from Age of Ultron, right? You know, uh, where it's a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts, Right. And that is one of my favorite lines because it is so incredibly true. We have this, I think, desperate idea in humanity that the only stuff that matters is the stuff that lasts forever. And the reality of it is nothing lasts forever. Eventually, you, me, everything under this is going to get swallowed up by the sun and burned away. Nobody's ever going to know it ever existed. At a certain point, it's just going to be lost and there's going to be no you know, um, no permanence about any of it, that doesn't make it any less valuable. Um, If anything, I think that it makes it more valuable. The fact that things are temporary make them more beautiful, more interesting, more powerful. Um, And all of that, I think, is is so interesting in that Matthew with his still human idea of you have to save this little scary, right? Yeah. Um, Is coming in, what are you going to do about it, boss? And dream from his perspective of the eternal, right? The endless. Um, He knows that the gift in all of these things and all of these experiences is in the temporariness and that you have to have an ending in order for that meaning to really be made, you know? Um, And so I love that. I love that we have the dual unmaking at the end with the building where Wanda is just being torn apart by a hurricane. Um, And you have that bittersweet feeling when something or someone passes. Um, And that bittersweet feeling is part of being human. We resist, we resist, we resist so hard. Do not go gently into that dark night, right? You know, Um, and yet this is the very nature of our existence. It is temporal, 
you know, it is temporary. Um, and so there's something about that. Um, at the end, I remember early on, I was like, the cuckoo is evil, the cuckoo is evil. And you were like, well, is the cuckoo evil or is the cuckoo nearly living according to their nature? And can that be evil? And when we come to this in bringing about the ending of the land, the cuckoo hasn't done anything like really evil. Her dancing around about it and not caring if anyone suffers or dies in the process, that's evil. But the end of the land was a natural inevitability. Um, so while it's because of the machinations and manipulations of the cuckoo, it's actually Barbie, who is the caretaker of the land at this time, who brings about its end, yes, under brainwashed influence, but she still does it, you know, and is happy to sacrifice her life in doing so. And this as a theme for this whole story, this whole run of Game of You, the, the beautiful temporary is something that I absolutely was not expecting, did not see coming, loved it. Yes, yes, I I agree. And it's, you know, it's interesting. Is the cuckoo actually brainwashing or is she influencing? I mean, she does seem to have this, this sort of quasi-magical uh, influence, but... I think it's interesting that she is also, in a sense, just persuading these characters to see the story we've been following from her perspective. She's, you know, she is saying, you think I am evil, but I just want to grow up and fulfill my potential by becoming a full, fully fledged thing that I am and having babies of my own. And so, you know, maybe they're brainwashed, although brainwashing it doesn't seem to actually be a thing. I read this whole book about it that, uh, yeah, it's it's we have this fantasy that people are utterly, um, you know, that, that in some way they're hypnotized. And I'm uh, it, it seems that it's not quite as, as simple as that. And um, yeah, it's actually the book was cultish all about the uh, similarities between cults and advertising. That sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to grab a copy of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm certain that it's not that um, that simple. Like we, you know, the the ability to embrace the complexity of everything is something that humans resist. We like to see patterns. We like to know what we can deduct from those patterns. And we like to have a simple explanation for things. And I think that now we are moving into a space societally where understanding complication is becoming much more necessary for us, you know, like as as a species to be able to continue for as long as we can, because we are yeah. the inevitable temporary, right? Um, but I, I find it really interesting how you have to be willing to embrace all of that complexity in order to really get to the core of that, you know? That like, yes, are these are these people being brainwashed? Well, this isn't what they would do. Like, I don't think Luz would have made those choices without the influence of the cuckoo. And so the cuckoo is, I think, putting her will into these people. But is it just that she is in that moment, convincing them that, that the way she sees things is correct, right? And that this is the inevitable moment, the inevitable unmaking that has to happen. And Barbie needs to do that. And maybe in that moment, Barbie is seeing beyond that 
that instinct that she has to protect and preserve and try to make permanent the the land. Now you had a, a really interesting thought. I, I I did peek about you know the fact that Thessaly, whose you know prime directive is do me no harm, you know right. also gets a bamboozled. <laughs> Thessaly is so interesting. Thessaly comes in. This cuckoo says, that's the cuckoo, points to the bird, loose, which I guess, you know. Um, and then Thessaly just goes and rings Luz's neck in this bloody, violent moment. And I'm like, wait a minute. Thessaly is the one who knows everything, right? Thessaly is the one who's supposed to, like, she comes in, she's got all the knowledge, she can talk to the moon, she can nail a dead face to the wall and make it just chitter chat. Like, she's doing all of this stuff. I can hear this now as she can dead nail a dead face to the wall, but you know, like, because I'm a woman, which woman of the lowlands. Sorry. <laughs> She's fascinating. Like Thessaly, I love. I also I also love a character, of course, that is only circumstantially on the side of good. Yes. That is basically. And that's another thing, too. Like, let's ask those questions, right? Thessaly is clearly not, like, morally great. But, you know, but <laughs> she is powerful. She's doing all of these things. She ends up working with the people who are on the side of good as it is represented in this, right? We need to save the land. We need to save Barbie. We need to save all this stuff. And then all of that destruction happens anyway. Thessaly, who knows everything, goes in and kills Luz, right? And then aside from that, accomplishes nothing? I mean, aside, like, Thessaly, had Thessaly not ever gone on the moon road, not ever taken Hazel and Foxglove into this very, very dangerous space, not ever done any of that stuff, the outcome would not have changed. She does nothing, right? And yeah. I think that all that power and yet mixed with all of that ineffectuality, doing nothing, the the ways in which Thessaly is frustrating and frustrated, I think, is kind of fascinating here. And the fact that she doesn't do anything, I feel like there's 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 meaning to be mined from that. All that power and yet can't even kill the right bird. Right. Um, I just I think that is such an interesting kind of side note. Ordinarily, when I see a character that goes into a story and fails to do like does nothing, makes has no effect. I think that's a character you can lose, right? We wouldn't have needed that. Except that thematically, I think that Thessaly speaks to what it, what is it to be evil? What is it to be good? Just because you're working with the good people does not make you good. Just because you have all this power doesn't mean that you can do anything about anything. Um, Thessaly is fascinating. I, I am absolutely love with the fact that you were going to write a Thessaly story. I need to read whatever your notes are on that Thessaly story, whatever your pitch was, because I am absolutely loving this character. I mean, as a person, she's shitty, but as a character, God, interesting. And so much thematic juice in that character. It's it's fascinating. Yes. And I think that because I myself, as, as probably many females are, you know, have a little bit of that pleaser aspect where I want mm -hmm. people to like me and I want to do the thing. I want to do it in the right way. And I want to, you know, please people mm -hmm. and not get on their bad side. And so, oh, my God, I love me, you know, a, a, a badass 
female character who just gives no, you know. Yeah, absolutely. No fucks. No fucks to give. Yes. (laughs) No fucks to give. Yes, I really love that too. And I think too, I have um, have deep, deep traumatic sourced uh, people pleasing in me. Um, (laughs) And I... I find that it's so interesting this um and you know as we were talking about brainwashing like I think that there is a certain amount of this like always do things the right way right but who decides what the right way is and who and that's the thing that's why it's yeah. so confusing and so hard to do because there is no it's the same way I've talked about I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast and I've talked about it in a number of places the idea that like perfection like the perfectionist mindset perfection isn't real perfect isn't real because no matter what, perfect is decided by a person's perspective on what is perfect. It is an opinion. And therefore, you will have 8 million different opinions on what is the quote unquote perfect way to do something. Um, and so it, it becomes this constant chasing of the impossible, right? And then you have somebody like Thessaly, who's like, I don't care if you like me, right? Which in reality, you're like, yeah, it shouldn't matter because if people like you, what does it matter? right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. And yet we spend so much of our time, like as humanity, I think most of us spend so much time and energy trying to be liked by everyone, which again is impossible. It is an impossible pursuit. This is why we're so goddamn tired all the time, right? But then you've got Thessaly who is like, I don't give a fuck. But also, you know, we don't want to do harm, you know, we don't want to harm people. We don't, especially, I think you don't want to harm Thessaly because Thessaly seems to me like the actual personification of fuck around and find out, you know? Um, so uh, yeah, I Thessaly, I think is a fascinating character. Is she likable? Absolutely not. But I am fascinated by her and I love what she represents thematically in this story. Yes. And I think that, you know, one of um, recently... Um, I Neil was was saying that the way to disagree with art, and I think it's not just disagree, it's engage with art, is find a way to make it your own. And that mm-hmm. Rachel Pollack, um, the the writer and tarot expert, had some issues with the character of Wanda, and then mm-hmm. went you know on to create her own uh, trans superhero Coagula, and and so I think you know in my mind I'm going to take this. You know, I I never did create my own Thessaly, Thessalian type character. I mean, she wouldn't necessarily be, you know, a a millennia old witch. But I think I think I really like the idea of taking some of that badass witchery and and creating, you know, my my take on it because I, I didn't get to do it. I would love that. Please do that. I am very excited to read whatever it is you do with that. I absolutely love that idea. And I think that's sort of a call out for everyone that, you know, if you never be afraid to be influenced as long as you fully digest, you know, you have to fully digest the magic seed and then you're allowed Mm -hmm. to lay your own golden egg. Yeah. Everything in storytelling is always standing on the shoulders of giants. You're always pulling from the things that you've experienced, putting a spin on it. Um, And I think that, that absolutely you should 
as a creative person, you should never be afraid to look at what's been there and say, how can I do this in a way that will be fun and meaningful for me? How can I take this idea and this thematic archetype one step further, you know? And the idea of Thessaly as her own no fucks to give uh, archetype, I, I quite like that. I think that she is really, really interesting. And I made sure that magic seed and put that in the book that I'm working on as well. So it'll be fun to see. And the thing is that you'll do it, I'll do it, and it'll all be completely different from what came before and what we're each doing. I, I think that like when you genuinely create from something, there's always that part of you in it that will make it unique, you know. Um, the other thing that I thought was was interesting is we have this sort of side story, you know, off off in the, the real world, right? We're with George and Wanda and now I don't like dogs lady who turns out to be Maisie. Um, so we see that like, you know, we, we open in New York with a radio call-in show and somebody's like, yeah, there's a hurricane coming. And she's like, no, there's not. The meteorologist said no, you know. Um, and I thought that that was really cute. And then of course the hurricane does come, right? It throws a garbage bin on Maisie. Wanda goes out, grabs Maisie, brings her inside to the safety of the building, which as it turns out, also comes crumbling down. So here we have this building at the same time that we're having the inevitable unmaking of the land, the building is also disintegrating, right? You know, and falling to pieces. And um, and I found that to be a really like interesting reflection. I don't quite know what it all means, you know, except for attaching once again to this inevitable temporariness of everything, you know. Um, but I thought it was a nice reflection. Um, and I also like that I don't like dogs lady got a name. I like Maisie. That's cool. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's part, again, of the the magic that gives Sandman the, the sense that these this world is vast and true and solid under your feet. And mm -hmm. and that's because throwaway characters can come back and be revealed to be so much more. Not that she was a throwaway, but she didn't seem like she was going she to. She could have been. She could have been. Yeah, she could have been. She wasn't because Neil made her not a throwaway. But, um, but I like that. And once again, Neil Gaiman using every part of the pig. Gotta <laughs> pull that back in. All right, on that note, we are going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment with Lucienne's Library. All right, so here we are, Lucienne's Library. Everybody know there may be minor spoilers. We're going to talk about the behind the scenes experience, all of the stuff that Elisa knows that she's going to share with us. So, Elisa, tell us a little bit. You were uh, you have in your notes here about Neil and his daughter Holly and how that influenced this story. Yeah. So, one of the things that I think is interesting, and I can say this, I've known Neil for more than thirty years, which no. seems crazy. Um, <laughs> You know, he was a parent who was hands-on. He really knew his kids. And now my father was also a science fiction writer, didn't raise me, wasn't really involved with raising any of his four kids, all from, uh -huh. well, uh, two were from one mom, uh, another, you know, four of us had three different moms. That's what I'm trying okay. to say. <laughs> but I think my father worried that any child-rearing stuff would take him away from the writing. 
And I wish sometimes that he were still alive and I could say, hey, you know, um, if you had been more involved with the stuff of, of the child rearing, it could have enriched your writing because mm-hmm. I think that really is what happened with Neil. So you get a lot of the cuckoo's mannerisms, her lally lally chant. Mm-hmm. They come from Neil's daughter, Holly. And, you know, she would have been six at the time that this was written. Mm-hmm. And shortly after this, maybe a year or two later, um, yes, I think it would have been a year or two later, I went to visit Neil and his family um, off in the Midwest. They had moved out of mm-hmm. England. And um, and I go and we're, we're discussing the spinoff series, The Dreaming. And mm-hmm. at that point, Neil had a, an office, as I recall, sort of in the basement. And Holly came dancing down the stairs with her, you know, little girl, boundless enthusiasm. Come, it's mm-hmm. time to play with me. It's after dinner. <laughs> and Neil said, I'm very sorry. You know, I, I, I have to work on this. Elise has come all this way. And uh, mm-hmm. and Holly, infuriated, said something along the lines of, all you do is steal. They're not even your ideas. You just steal other people's ideas and you write them up and, you know... <laughs> And then she stormed off, stomping off with great Aww. dignity. And mm-hmm. Neil looked at me and said, you know, she's absolutely right. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's the like, mm-hmm. like Shakespeare, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he would often uh, borrow and take plots, um, you know, from classical of course. literature and does. be in dialogue. Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, but I just it, the timing of it was chef's kiss perfection. <laughs> And uh, so that was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And now I was thinking, um, we had been talking about every part of the pig and that way of dropping something in, a little reference to something, you know, the way in the uh, original Avengers movie, there's this little, you know, well, of course, there was Budapest. And (laughs) that technique, I believe, you know, was was if not pioneered, then, you know, certainly used to great effect by Roger uh, Zelazny, the mm-hmm. science fiction writer. Yeah, so Neil was rereading Nine Princes in Amber. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I think that all of us are in a dialogue with the writers, you know, who mm-hmm. we read when we were forming, or mm-hmm. as we are still forming. I, I sometimes think I am still forming, because sometimes I will watch uh, you know, th- well, I'll read something and there is a little part of my brain that thinks, oh, look at that dance move. I hadn't thought of using that dance move. And now yep. I shall I shall move that dance move. That's the magpie. Right. I talked about this in class last week, um, that basically one of the things you want to do as a writer and when Neil talks about pulling from Shakespeare, from myths or from whatever and reworking them into a modern context. A, that's how storytelling has worked since the beginning of time. That is how storytelling is supposed to work. Um, But B, it's also like it's, you know, there's this idea of the magpie. And I think that this is all apocryphal. I'm not really sure this is actually how magpies, the biological bird work. But magpies as the kind of metaphorical entity go out into the world. They find shiny things. They pick them up and they thread them into the nest. Right. And so then their nest ends up being a whole mix of collected objects. Right. And I think that we as writers, like when you look at Thessaly, you think I want to write a, a no fucks to give badass witch, right? That is a magpie moment. That is a moment where you're going and you're grabbing this idea and you're going to weave it into your nest. 
But your nest is different from the original sparkly thing that you found. It is a completely different thing. Um, And that is how storytelling, A, works, B, is supposed to work. We retell these stories, right? Because all of the stories that we tell reflect us back at ourselves, right? Um, And some of them reflect us culturally in the moment back at ourselves. And some of them reflect us as the, the human experience that has been the same from the days of the Lascaux cave paintings to now, right? There are certain human things that will never change that will remain the same and every story we tell is a mix of these things experiences and and the ways in which we live in the world uh, reflected back at us so that we can take that magic and move forward with it Um, which is one of the things that I love about storytelling one of the many things that I love about storytelling is that both temporary of the moment ephemeral and and immortal soul part of storytelling. So doing the magpie, going in, grabbing things, taking them, putting them in your nest is not a problem. Copying and pasting somebody else's work and selling it as your own, that's the problem. That's plagiarism. That's a whole different ball of wax. But being inspired by things that have come before. And I think that one of the most sacred things that we do in storytelling is retell the stories. You know, we go back to these fairy tales, right? And we retell them and retell them and retell them. And they may have some of the initial same elements, but we retell them in a new way. And the first thing that comes to mind is the retelling um, of Snow White, that uh, that Neil did with Colleen Doran, and it is, I want to call it Snow Glass Apples. I'm not sure if that's it. I apologize if it's wrong. I'll make sure it's right in the, um, I read it recently. Friggin' beautiful. Colleen Doran is one of my all-time favorite artists ever. Like, just love her work. But, you know, taking that story and retelling it in a way that is is different and vampires and like all sorts of really, really cool things mixed in. In no way is that a plagiarism of the original Snow White. In no way does that dishonor the original Snow White. You know, it just takes it and puts it in a different context, which I love. And I'm sorry, I go on and on and on about if you get me started on storytelling, it'll be the whole damn podcast. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about out here um, was Eleonora, right? Um, so we have this moment. Here we are in the middle of this beautiful temporary, uh, you know, big, huge moment where where dream is unmaking the land and all of the entities that have been part of it are flowing back into his cloaks to be remade as something else later, which I love. And it has this, you know, this sense of, of reincarnation and, and that nothing is ever destroyed in, in the soul of an entity. All of that stuff. Absolutely love it. Um, but then there's this moment where this woman, it's for two panels. Alionora comes out. She clearly is important. She looks at Dream. Dream is like, I loved you once, you know. Um, and, and, you know, and she's got this scar on her face, which I'm sure has story behind it. Um, and she's so, like, in this moment, she is the one that the land, I guess, was originally under her rule. And now she is going back into Dream, which, you know, is is such a beautiful idea. It's such a beautiful representation. And as a reader now, at this point in my Sandman reading, I have no idea who this woman is. It's very similar to the way that Nada was introduced. We have a moment of Nada introduced. We know that there's a story there. And I am certainly hoping that we will find out what the story is with Alianora the way that we did with Nada. Uh, We don't. 
<laughs> just oh. I, I, as far as I know, we never find out more. So this is one of the mm-hmm. as yet unexplored uh, parts of uh, presumably Morpheus's love life. I think she yeah. was. I don't know if it was consummated or not, but I think there's an implication mm-hmm. that this was a love. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've always found her fascinating. The story of the scar. I'm. I mean, it, it, the implication. I think, unless this is purely an inference is that in some way this woman was in some abusive situation and mm-hmm. that Morpheus gave her this scary this this dream world as an escape oh, and that and wow. that she died while dreaming otherwise mm-hmm. she wouldn't be able so she's no longer able to be the human you know right. leader there but that she died while dreaming presumably from mm-hmm. whatever situation gave her that scar i mean that's that's as much as i can infer mm-hmm. or, or 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 pick up from what's implied but um one thing and again i this is one of those things i did try to check with neil but i didn't get a response to this part mm-hmm. um my distant memory of this long ago script <laughs> is that the dress was supposed to be older mm-hmm. and i I think I've remembered this because I used to obsess a bit about <laughs> fashions of the times mm-hmm. and, you know, would, would think like, oh, well, it's a medieval festival, but that woman is wearing a Renaissance gown. She shouldn't be having pleated. <laughs> she should be wearing a sack, you know, because the difference between medieval and Renaissance garb is cleavage. Um <laughs> The difference between so much in women's fashion is cleavage. Cleavage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so décolletage. Yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I. Uh, so I, my guess is that Eleanor is supposed to be much older. Her dress looks mm-hmm. Edwardian to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think she is supposed to be far older than that. And if I were going to be picking up the story of Eleonora, I would assume that we are talking. Um, early middle ages and maybe mm-hmm. further back than that oh i mean that's fascinating now i want that story too i want thessaly i want alienora see this is how it's done this is how it's done that little magpie piece that you can pull in and uh, and write your own stories all right elisa so um now let's move into our favorite part of every episode which is when we talk about our favorite art and our favorite part of the story so what is your favorite art in this issue um my favorite art has to be all the the fairy tale creatures all marching yeah. off, you know, with great gravitas mm-hmm. towards their unmaking. Yeah. Um, and it's a, that's my favorite art place. I also really love the Thessaly Morpheus Murphy mm-hmm. face off. Um, maybe not as much from the art aspect, but more just from a, a, a deliciousness aspect. How, how about you? <laughs> Well, my favorite art um, from this, I think, is the the one Murphy. Now he's Murphy to me. Is unmaking the land, right? Oh yes. Um, you know, we have that moment with Alianora, which is incredibly beautiful. But then we see the land in the palm of his hand, and again, and we have Barbie acknowledging this, right? Where she's doing this narration, and she's like, "Was it small?" No, because I could still see everything. I could still feel everything that was in it. Like its dimensions don't change and Morpheus's dimensions don't change, but it still fits inside of his hand. And I kind of love the way that in the dreaming we're able to 
step outside of these uh, kind of scientific rules of existence and and live within the metaphor live within what it means rather than what it is right oh that's um, beautifully put that. yeah i absolutely absolutely love that um and it's also my favorite part of the story is the unmaking of the land right you know um sad beautiful necessary bittersweet it's all of those things and it is such the acceptance of the unmaking, the the lack of resistance, which is what happens, right? It is so human to resist and yet to not resist this moment, to allow this moment to be because the temporariness of everything is exactly what makes existence, what gives it its meaning, you know? Absolutely love that. I just think it's amazing. All right. So for what's your favorite part of the story? I, you know, in a, a weird, quiet way, the page where we get to know more about Maisie Hill, also known as mm -hmm. the I Hate Dogs Lady. Um, yes. I think Wanda's rescue of Maisie elevates Wanda. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. get this wonderful moment of bonding and insight between the two. I also love the little insight that Wanda thirsts for the young mm -hmm. Rutger Hauer. I remember <laughs> I... I had this weird kind of, you know, guilty Jewish girl lust for young Rutger Hauer myself. And I remember talking to Neil about it. That I was I, it's because even in the late 80s, early 90s, it's not mm -hmm. something that everyone walked around talking about. He was, you know, he was an oddball <laughs> thirst. Um, I just watched Blade Runner for the first time and I'd never seen Rutger Hauer at that stage in his career. And oh, it was oh, really fun. Lady watch. Hawk. Lady Hawk. If oh, you want I need to, to understand. Lady Hawk. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Everybody needs to watch Lady Hawk. <laughs> everybody <Okay>. must. <laughs> I love it. All right. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show. Or break the hierogram and the porpentine and fly lolly lolly out of your dreams and into your lives. <laughs> this episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack? Never use unflavored Q-tips again. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next time with I Woke Up and One of Us Was Crying, issue number six of A Game of You. Until then, endings are mixed blessings, Princess Barbara. Princess Barbara.